Let's take our Bibles and go to John chapter number 11, please. The 11th chapter in the book of John is where we'll find our text this morning. And uh, this is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. And I'll explain a little bit as to why uh, that is here in just a moment. It's a lengthy chapter, and so we will obviously not read all of the uh, scriptures that are, that are found here. But in John chapter number 11, we'll begin our reading in verse number 14. And if you'll look there with me, if you would, John 11 and verse number 14, where the Bible says, Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? The title of the message this morning is Christ Visits a Cemetery. Christ Visits a Cemetery. As a pastor, I have spent more time than I certainly would like to in hospitals and hospice facilities, in funeral homes, and in cemeteries. I've been drawn to this chapter in this story because in it, we find Jesus Christ doing similarly. We, we find him visiting a cemetery. The Bible reveals that Christ Jesus, during his earthly life and ministry, he did many of the same things that you and I do. Throughout his life, he would experience hunger and thirst. He would be weary. He would be burdened by things. He would be grieved, and he would be filled with sorrow from time to time. And in John 11, one of his, one of his dear friends, seemingly one of his closest ministry friends, passes away due to a mysterious illness. The Bible does not tell us what Lazarus was suffering from or what he was dealing with. But it was serious enough that it would claim his life. And by the time Christ arrives, this dear friend has been dead and buried now for four days, according to verse number 39. This chapter, I believe, is a great chapter because it reveals several things. It reveals to us the humanity of Jesus. It reveals the omniscience of Jesus. It reveals the faith of some of Christ's dear followers. And it reveals also the divine power that Christ possesses over death, the most feared enemy to every one of us in this room this morning. In the 23rd verse of this great chapter, Jesus makes... 
a great promise to this woman by the name of Martha. She's the grieving sister of Lazarus. She is still overwhelmed by her grief, and he looks at her, and he tells her, thy brother shall rise again. And I have to tell you, it almost seems cruel and heartless that Jesus would tell Martha this. I mean, I mean, I've lived for 43 years here on this earth, and I've been around a lot of sickness and a lot of death, and I have never, I have never seen anyone die and rise again. And neither had Martha. Martha hadn't seen that either which led Martha to be very guarded in, in her response, and yet, and yet she's full of faith in this response. She admits by faith, yes, there, there is a resurrection that is coming, but she reveals that it's coming someday in her mind, this resurrection. Yes, my brother's going to rise again, but it's not going to be any time soon. She, uh, she refers to it. She refers to this resurrection as the last day. In other words, she does not believe that she will see her brother alive again here on this earth in this life. But my friend, Jesus has other plans. Can I say this, that when Jesus visits a cemetery, unusual things are bound to happen. You see, this was not the only cemetery Christ visited a day would come when wicked hands would take him and would beat him and crucify him. He would hang on a cross as a, a common criminal would, but not for any crimes that he had committed. He would suffer there for my crimes and for my sin and for yours as well. After crying on that cross, it is finished and into thy hands I commend my spirit. He would give up the ghost, the Bible says, and he would expire. Some dear followers of his would take his body down from that cross and they would bury it in a borrowed tomb and he would spend approximately 72 hours in this particular cemetery, not as a visitor and not as a caretaker, but no, he was there any longer. I want us to take a walk, a journey through John chapter number 11 and I want us to consider three great truths that I discover from this particular chapter. I want to start by looking at the beginning of the chapter. And I want to make, I want to make this observation. And, and here's the first thought or the first point is this, that we, you and I, have no control over when Christ arrives at the cemetery. We have no control over when it is that Christ arrives at the cemetery. In verses 1 to 17, we discover that as Lazarus falls sick, his sisters, Mary and Martha, they send for Jesus to let him know, hey, listen, your friend Lazarus, the one who you love, he is sick. And they assumed, they assumed that because of this relationship and because of this love that Jesus had for Lazarus and that Lazarus had for them uh, in him, they assumed that Christ would come immediately. That's the, that's the presumption that, that we find in our text. All we have to do is send word, and, and Jesus is going to drop everything that he is, going, is doing, and he is going to rush to our side because he, he, he loves Lazarus, and because Lazarus loves him, and because we have this relationship, no doubt Jesus will come right away. However, however by the time the message arrives, Christ tarries on purpose an additional two days, and he finally makes his journey from wherever he was to where, where Lazarus would have been or where his family would have been. By, the, by this point in time, Lazarus is buried and dead for four days. 
Mary and Martha both expressed frustration that Christ did not come sooner. We see that in verse 21, and we see that in verse number 32. Lord, if you, if you would have come, we would not have been here. You see, they, they were not anticipating a resurrection from the dead. What they were hoping for was that Jesus would get there in time so that Jesus could keep Lazarus from ever having to be in the grave to begin with. They, they did not, I don't suppose, they assumed or they anticipated that Christ would have the power, that he would have the strength, that he have the ability to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet now their brother is in a cemetery and they wonder whether they'll ever see him again. They're fairly certain that they will not. Can I remind you that life is full of disappointments? Sometimes, can I just say this, that sometimes the greatest disappointment in life is not what other people might do around you, but rather the greatest disappointment sometimes centers around God not working sooner or God not working according to the way that you think he's going to work. Can I just be real frank and can we be real transparent in church here this morning? And can we just admit that there are times in which God allows things into our lives and we wonder, Lord, why would you let this happen? Lord, why would you bring this into my life? We stood and, or we sat and we watched as a dear man stood here at this pulpit a moment ago. And I think most of us, most of us, when we heard the news and as we watched this man suffer, we thought to ourselves, Lord, this doesn't make sense. Here's a faithful man trying to serve you. Lord, why, why, why have you not stepped in yet? Why have you not removed this disease from his life? Lord, why would you let this disease come into his life to begin with? Sometimes, sometimes our greatest disappointment centers around the fact that God doesn't do what we think he should. God doesn't work the way that we assume that he will. And can I remind you that we discover these, these truths from this text, listen, that I think are so helpful when we find ourselves in a position of having to wait on God's timing, or perhaps we find ourselves in a position where what God has done doesn't make sense. And let me share three, three great truths that just literally jump off the page to us in moments like this. Here, listen, here's what you need to tell yourself. Here's what you need to be reminded of. If you're in a season right now, or perhaps you know that you will be in a season in which God has allowed something to touch you that you wish that he would not have allowed to touch you, re remind yourself of these two, three truths. Number one, number one, I want you to know this, he loves you. No matter what. No matter the fact that you're in the, maybe the cemetery of life or you're in a difficult moment in life and you're thinking to yourself, boy, I, I didn't think that God, I thought God was good. I didn't think that he would allow something like this in my life. Just remember this. Listen, no matter how you may feel and no matter what you may be thinking, remind yourself of this truth. He still loves you. Would you look with me in our text? Look in verse number three. Therefore his sisters sent unto him saying, Lord, Behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Look in verse number five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, now there's, there's gonna be some things that happen in this text that would sort of make us wonder about that. But do not, listen, do not lose sight of this truth that no matter how things may look and no matter what takes place, remember this, he loves you just as he loved Mary, just as he loved Martha, just as he loved Lazarus. Christ really didn't have many friends in this part of Israel. You see, Bethany is just a short distance from Jerusalem, which we know it was enemy territory in many respects for Christ and his disciples. 
It was the home of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the Sanhedrin. But in a little town just outside of Jerusalem was a, was a little town called Bethany that had a, a, a precious family that loved Jesus and who Jesus loved. And the reason they sent unto him was because they knew, they knew that Jesus loved him and they knew that Jesus would want to know about what Lazarus was dealing with. Can I remind you that while Christ may not always work according to our plan and according to our wishes, listen, one thing you should never wonder about is whether Christ loves you or not. You can be certain. You can be certain that he loves you. No doubt about it. Regardless of what is happening, you may wonder about when he's going to show up, but you never, never ought to wonder about whether he loves you or not. The cross proves that he loves you. This book proves that he loves you. Your salvation proves that he loves you. Jesus loves you. But notice, secondly, we need to remind ourselves of this. When we're wondering if Christ is ever going to arrive at the cemetery, remind yourself of this, that he not only loves you, but that secondly, he has a purpose for your trial. He has a purpose for your trial. Look in verse number four. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Jesus was not saying that Lazarus would not die, but rather he was saying that Lazarus would not remain under death. Lazarus would succumb to death. Uh, The text reveals that to us very clearly, uh, that Lazarus would succumb to death at the hands of this sickness. But listen, that Christ was going to raise him back to life. Why? We ask the question, well, why? Lord, why would you allow this to happen in his life? And we discover the Bible tells us that all of this had come to pass so that God could be glorified. When you can't figure out an earthly reason for your trial, And many times, listen, many times you and I will enter into seasons and moments and we'll be in the midst of a trial in which there's no earthly reason as to why I'm dealing with this. Why is it that I am dealing with this sickness or my loved one is dealing with this sickness? Lord, why did you you take this away from us? Why did you allow this to enter into our lives? When you cannot figure out an earthly reason why you must endure whatever it is that you're enduring, then assume, then assume, listen, that the reason is a heavenly reason. If I can't find an earthly reason, I have to assume, okay, well, God, you're doing something in all of this. Perhaps, perhaps I'll only know why you did this when I get to heaven. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to live throughout this trial, and I'm going to live in such a way as to bring you glory in all of this. Remind yourself that there is always a purpose for your trial. Someone once said it this way, God never wastes a trial. Can I say number three, not only does he love you, You should remind yourself of this when you're waiting for him to arrive at your cemetery or at your difficult moment in life. Not only does he have a purpose for your trial, but number three, remind yourself of this, that no matter what it might seem like, number three, he is always on time. He is always on time. Would you look in verse number six? When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. It seems to me that his abiding two days is is in response, it is clearly in response to this trial that he is doing this on purpose. Would you look in verse number 14? The Bible says, Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. That's interesting, isn't it? 
Because Christ was speaking and he was looking at the situation from a divine perspective, his disciples were a little confused, weren't they? When Christ used the word sleepeth in verse number 11, his disciples did not understand it as he meant it. They thought he was speaking of physical sleep, but Christ meant something much more than that, which led Jesus to be much more direct. The Bible uses the word plainly in verse number 14. He says, he says listen, okay, I, I used the term sleep a minute ago, but you all didn't get it, so let me speak a little bit more plainly. Lazarus is dead. And he says, and I'm glad. I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm not glad that he's dead. I'm glad I wasn't there. And here's why. Because I'm going to do something in this particular matter through his death that I could not have done if he would have just remained sick. Jesus says, this is why I spent an additional two days. I did it on purpose. And when I show up, it's going to seem like I'm late. It's going to seem like I didn't know what I was doing. But I want you to know something. I want you to know I've known what I've been doing all along. I did this on purpose. Lazarus was dead. I mean, this was the worst possible outcome, wasn't it? He was a friend. They knew that he had been, they knew that Jesus had been alerted. They, they were there when he'd gotten the news. They were all discouraged and no doubt frustrated. And, and yet they watched as Jesus delayed. And now he's too late. But I remind you, Christ is never late. It may seem like it to us, but, but, but listen, God never, never moves without a purpose, without a plan. Christ was glad that he had not been there because his delay would provide for an undeniable proof that he was divine. Because of this, instead of healing a sick man, he would now have an opportunity to raise back to life a dead man. Something that, as far as we know, had not happened in his earthly ministry up until this point. The later it gets, the bigger the problem, the greater the opportunity there is for him to dis display his power that others might believe. Listen, listen, remind yourself of this. When you're wondering, is Christ ever going to get here? Is God ever going to intervene? Remind yourself of this. He is always on time. And even when it seems like he's late, even when it seems like things have progressed to a point where there's no way that this can be redeemed, remember that Jesus has the ability, has the power to overturn even things that seem like they cannot be redeemed, things that can only be brought back to life. Let me say number two. We discover in our text that in the cemetery, everyone handles grief differently. We learn of that in verses 18 to 38, that in the cemetery of life, when we're dealing with great difficulty and great trial, we discover that everyone handles grief in a different way. Having spent much time as a pastor around death and around dying, I can assure you that everyone handles this season differently. I, I want to I wanna say that, first of all, there's, and, and this is not even a point that you can write down, there won't be anything on the screen, but I just, as I'm thinking along this, I, I want to say that, first of all, Christian people and, and unsaved people handle these things differently. You should know that. You should know that as a, as a pastor, I've, I've, I've preached funerals for folks who have been faithful and, and who we've watched live out their Christian faith and testimony. And I've also had opportunity to preach funerals of people that, at the very least, I don't know about them, but, but at the very least, their family knows nothing about Christ. And so to them, death and dying is final. It's, it's over. We'll never see this person again. And I must tell you, I must tell you that there is a vast difference between the two. When there, when there, is, when there is no hope, 
or no thought that there's any hope that you're ever going to see your loved one again, how do you possibly process that? I mean, how do, you, how do you take 70, 75, 80 years of life and relationships and, and of enjoyment with one another, and, and all of a sudden it comes to a screeching halt, and there is no hope, and there is no promise that you'll ever see that person again? How do you deal with that? I've often wondered that. You see, that's not a reality for those of us that know Christ. Oh, it is a, it is a reality here on this earth, but, but these, are, these are temporary realities, We know that we're placing that body in the ground and we know that we're not going to see them or hear their their voice uh, save for for a picture or or, or for some memory that we have in our mind. We won't hear them here on this earth, but we know, listen, we know that we have an eternity to look forward to, don't we? Those that are lost, they don't know Christ. They have no hope of this sort of thing. I stood at a funeral home yesterday with this same Bible in my hands, and I looked out at a a great crowd of folks that was there at that service. And I said something to this effect. I said, listen, your dear mother and grandmother and great-grandmother may not have left you an earthly fortune, but I would say that she left you something of far greater value. And what she left was she left a heritage, a legacy of faith. And because of that, if you have that same heritage, if you have that same faith, if you've embraced the same Savior that she embraced, listen, this is not the end. You will see her again. You will hear her voice again. You will spend time with her again. And to me, listen, that is a great hope. And so you must understand, if you get around people that are, that, are, that are saved and they know Christ is their Savior and their loved one knew Christ is their Savior, you will discover, yes, grief in that room, but it will be different than the grief that you'll find in a place where there is no hope. We find several different types of grievers in our text. I want to identify them to you. First of all, we find the comforters. We find them in verse number 19 and verse number 31. The Bible says, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Look at verse number 31. The Jews then, which were with her in the house and comforted her when they saw Mary that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her saying, she goeth unto the grave to weep there. Upon Lazarus' death, it seems that many from their community rushed to be near them to be by their side, to be close to Mary and Martha so that they did not have to to grieve alone. These folks would mourn along with these two ladies. They would be a comforting presence near them. No doubt they would be there just to look after their needs, to make sure that maybe they had some food to eat, to make sure that maybe their laundry got done. And the the things that, that we just do on a normal basis when we're in a season of grief, a lot of times we don't think about those sorts of things. We don't have time for those sorts of things. Or even if we do think, we just don't have the energy or the strength to be able to go about doing those things. And so these comforters rushed to the side of these two ladies and they just said, listen, we're gonna stay here for a while. We don't want you to be alone. We, we want people to be near you so that you do not have to grieve by yourself. And I just want to go on record and say, thank God for comforters. Thank God for people who have a heart like that. You heard Brother Paul just a moment ago say that one of the things that has encouraged him so much during this trial, during this season, are the notes and the cards that he's received from our church family. And I must tell you, as a pastor of this church, I am often overwhelmed by the caring nature of the people here in this church. Here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that in my mind, this church is full of comforters. 
It's full of people who rush to the side of others. These types of people are a blessing. Some of you, some of you are natural comforters. You're just natural. You're just naturally gifted in that realm. You just, you look for an opportunity to find someone who's grieving, someone who's struggling, then you try to rush to their side so that you can be near them. Some people are not that way. Some of you, you're sitting here and you're saying, you know, I get real nervous around grieving people. I'm always afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. Or, or perhaps I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that I, I just don't like to be around too much sorrow and it takes me to a dark place and a difficult place. And I, 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 I'm, not here to, I'm not here to tell you to be something that you're not, but I'm just simply saying thank God for those who are comforters. Thank God for those who, when they hear someone's going through a trial, they call them, they text them. Perhaps maybe they even go by the house. At the very least, they take out a pen and a piece of paper, and they write a note to them and put it in the mail to let them know, hey, listen, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. Those who perhaps maybe drop off some groceries or maybe to prepare a meal and take that to the side of a person or maybe even someone who gives a financial gift to be a blessing to someone who's in the midst of a trial. Those people are comforters, and we got to be thankful for the comforters during the grieving seasons of life. Your empathy and your sympathy are very significant to others in the grieving and healing process. Because I spend a lot of time with people who are suffering and grieving, there have been times in which I've talked to them and I've said, you know, people a lot of times they'll say, you know, I don't know what to say. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. I had a dear lady one time, she told me this. She said, you know, she said, I, I've been in those seasons in which I was grieving. And she said, you know, some people came and they didn't say anything, just their presence was so significant. There's the comforters. But notice, notice I find that there's the composed. In verses 20 to 22, we, we find Martha. And she sort of comes to the scene here in this text. And, and, we, and, and she's emphasized first because she came out of the house when Jesus finally made it. Mar- Mary stayed in the house, but Martha came rushing out of the house to see him. And Martha seems to me to be equal parts distraught and equal parts hopeful. She seems to hold out hope that despite her disappointment that Christ did not come sooner, now he was here and with Christ in the cemetery, you know, who knows, anything can happen. I don't think she's anticipating a resurrection. I don't think she's thinking that at all. But I think in the back of her mind, she's saying, you know, maybe just maybe if you wanted to do it, maybe something unusual could happen. Maybe he could give us just another couple of hours with him. Maybe he could give us another day with him. I don't know what he's going to do. But Lord, you're here now, and so long as you're here, anything that you say could possibly potentially happen. That's sort of Martha's attitude. And here's what I find. I find that balanced or composed grieving, I believe in some respects that is pleasing to the Lord. What I mean by that is this, the composed griever, they smile through their tears and their sorrow. They, they, do not, they, they do not ignore the fact that they're grieving, that they're filled with sorrow. They do not, they do not even avoid maybe a, a complaint or a lament to the Lord. Lord, I don't know why you're doing this. Lord, I don't like this at all. But in the midst of that, there's still some form of hope in their heart and in their life. That Lord, I, I don't understand what you're doing. And Lord, it seems like if I were you, I would have come and I would have intervened sooner. But Lord, I do know that you're here and I do know that you're near and I do know that you are longing to hear the prayers of, of God's people. And so Lord, I'm gonna continue praying and I'm gonna continue believing that you could do something special even in the midst of this trial. It's these people that though they're heartbroken and though they're heart sick, there remains, listen, there remains a hope that this is not the end. I think maybe one of the most astounding things to me in my time as, as pastor is the fact that when I've been in the very room with a loved one who is dying, I mean literally hours away 
or maybe even minutes away. The tears are flowing, and there's grief. But here's what often happens. There's a, there's a pendulum swing, and there's grief and sorrow. And then a few moments later, there's laughter, and there's joy. As we reminisce, and as we think, and as we reflect on the fact that, hold on a minute, though this person is leaving us, this person is going to be with Jesus, which is far better for them. And one of these days, we're going to see them again. And then a few moments later, there is more grief and sorrow. And a few moments later, we're back to a position of hopefulness. And what I would say to you, listen, is that this to me is composed grieving. And I believe, listen, I believe that it's pleasing to God. I find that composed grieving comes more often with expected death. In other words, our loved one is aging. Our loved one is very sick. And in some respects, death is almost viewed as a relief or a blessing. And can I say that composed grieving, listen, composed grieving always, always comes about because that person knows Christ and that person knows that their loved one who is dying knows Christ as well. So therefore, no matter what happens here on this earth, Lord, if you do take them, so be it. We know, we know, we know that this is not the end. We see not only the comforters and the composed, but thirdly, we see the broken in verses 28 to 20 through 33. I believe in some respects, Mary reminds us of the broken. Mary remains in the house upon Christ's arrival. When she's called for, she arises quickly and she goes to him. Upon her, upon her exiting the house, the, the comforters assume that she's gone to be where Lazarus is buried to, to, to do more weeping there. It's almost as if she's either in the house or she's at the cemetery weeping and crying. That's all that she does. That's what her life consists of at this moment. That's what the comforters are assuming. Mary's distraught over her brother's death. Can I say, listen, this is not a criticism. This is not a criticism at all. It's, in fact, it's completely normal. Upon death, some are so broken that all they can do is weep or cry. They cannot smile, even, even, even though they have hope that they're gonna see their loved one again. There's just, there's just no time for that at this point in time. It's just in, in, complete, utter impossibility. There is a pall or an aura over them that is only sorrowful. It is hard and difficult for them to smile through their tears. And listen, I believe brokenness comes more often with unexpected or untimely death. We don't know how old Lazarus was, but we certainly don't think that he was at the position where he was old enough to be dying. And I think that that perhaps is where Mary is coming from. Lord, Lord, he's too young to die. Lord, this all happened so fast. He got sick and within a matter of days, he was gone and we had buried him. Lord, this doesn't seem fair. Can I say that it is possible to mourn this way as a believer? But what I wanna say this is that a believer ought not to stay here very long. For listen, we have hope. We have hope. The sun is going to rise again tomorrow. And when it does, it's a reminder that God is still on his throne. And it's a reminder that there is coming a day in which the sun won't have to rise anymore because Jesus will be the light of that place. And we will spend eternity forever with our loved ones. And as I come to this cemetery, oh, I'm grieving and my heart is filled with sorrow. But I must remind myself of this, that there is coming a day in which this very place where we're lowering the body of my dearly departed loved one, this very place is the place where they're going to experience, listen, their greatest moment here on this earth. Because when, listen, when that trumpet sounds and my loved one is dead and they're gone and they're buried, but when that trumpet sounds, they're coming up out of that grave. I've been to the Holy Land on two separate occasions. On both trips, we saved, we saved what we believe to be the garden tomb for the very last thing. 
And all along the way, all along the way, the tour guides kept saying this, this is great, this is great, but the best is yet to come. By the time we got to about the middle of that trip, uh, the person would say, wasn't that neat? Wasn't it neat to visit the town of Magdala where we believe Mary Magdalene was from? All that was really neat. That was really cool. And then he would say this on the, on the speaker on the bus. He would say, but the best, and we would all chime in, is yet to come. We'd go to Capernaum, and we'd see Capernaum where Jesus' headquarters was during his earthly ministry. And we'd walk around the ruins, and we'd see the very synagogue in which there's still ruins from the very first century, which is the, the life of Christ. It's very likely that Jesus walked on that very area there. And he'd say, wasn't that neat? Wasn't that special? We'd sail on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Wasn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? But the best is yet to come. And you know what that is? That's a reminder. That's a reminder. We save the best for last, don't we? And can I say that wherever it is that you've buried your loved one and there's grief and there's sorrow and we go there and we cry and we weep, but we say, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. Because of Jesus, the best is yet to come. It's encouraging, isn't it? The broken, the composed, the comforters, but we even see we even see the Lord grieving in our text, don't we? Would you look in verses 33 to 35? When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. We get a glimpse of the grieving process of Christ in our text, don't we? The Bible tells us he groaned. It means that he was moved with sympathy and love. This was deep and it was internal. He was troubled and then he wept. Christ's emotions were moved upon the death of Lazarus as to reveal just how much he loved him. And can I just remind you that you and I ought never forget that Christ loves us and he sees us in our seasons of grief and that he cares. He cares. The third thing that I'd like to point out to you here this morning is this thought number three the power of the savior is superior to the power of the cemetery the power of our savior is superior to the power of the cemetery you know there is a power in a cemetery isn't there a cemetery is assumed by some to be sort of spooky and haunted we're in that time of year in which maybe you drive down your street and you'll find someone who gets into the whole Halloween scene and they maybe decorate their front lawn with gravestones and cobwebs and different things like that. And there's this common, in some respects, pagan or heathen thought that there's something spooky and something mysterious about a cemetery. Several years ago, I was driving down the street and all of a sudden I hear in the back of my car, I hear my kids go, <gasps> hear them go, <sighs> What is wrong with you? I'm like, Dad, don't you know that when you drive by a cemetery, you have to hold your breath? How many of you ever heard of something stupid like that? You've heard of something like that? Who comes up with this stuff? I'm thinking to myself, you know, well, don't do that when driving past Arlington National Cemetery. You might never wake up. It's a big one, you know? Cemeteries around here, you know, you can maybe get away with that, but where do we come up with this stuff? cemeteries are spooky you know as well as i do that probably if you have a house across the street from a cemetery it's probably not as worth as much money if it wasn't across the street from a cemetery nobody wants to live by a cemetery uh, most people are, are sort of superstitious that way but you know what i find i find that jesus isn't afraid of a cemetery you and i might be some of you you dread to go to a cemetery it's the last place you want to go maybe you force yourself to do it out of love of that 
Can I tell you, listen, the power of the Savior is superior to the power of the cemetery. Can I say number one, that the power of the Savior is made available by faith. Would you look in verse 39? Jesus said, take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he's been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone. Martha resisted, didn't she? Here's why she resisted. I mean, the stone was the one thing that allowed Lazarus to retain any form of dignity in his death. But by now, by now, he's been dead for four days. The decomposition process has begun. And by removing the stone, the, this process would surely be exposed to all who were near. Lord, he stinks by now. Lord, his body has begun to, to, to return to the dust from whence it was made. Uh, Lord, please, please don't make us do that. Lord, can either do what I tell you to do by faith and, and, and receive a miracle, or you can remain in your fear, and you can remain in your grief and in your sorrow. But the choice is yours. And can I tell you that in order, in order to be saved today, in order to, to know for sure that heaven is your home, listen, that power is only made available through faith. Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done, and now he says to you, you must repent of your sin and believe on me. And some of you are sitting here saying, no, it must be harder than that. Lord, do you really expect me to humble myself in front of all of these people and to repent of my sin? And I would just say, listen, if you expect, listen, if you expect someday to rise from the cemetery, if you expect to have the power that is superior to the power of the cemetery, the power of the Savior, you must accept that by faith. By faith. By faith, they obeyed. And they did remove the stone. It gave them the chance to see him do something miraculous. And I want to ask the question, what is he asking you to do today that you're terrified to do? His power is only made available by faith. Without it, listen, without it, it is impossible to please him. I say, secondly, listen, there is life-giving power in the Savior's word. Would you look with me in verse 42? Verse number end of verse number 41, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto him, loose him and let him go. Isn't that amazing? What a miracle. Here was this man that had been buried. They'd wrapped him in the grave clothes. They had rolled the stone in front of the tomb where he was laid, and Jesus says, remove the stone. Lord, we don't want to do that. He's been dead now for four days. Surely he stinks by now. And Jesus said, just do what I'm telling you to do. Do it by faith. And they did. And Jesus prays a short prayer. And then he shouts, Lazarus, come forth. I want you to know there was no power on heaven. No power on earth, no power under the earth that could have forbid or could have stopped Lazarus from coming out of that grave. And Jesus looked at them and he said, hey, you run to his side, loose him and let him go. Albert Barnes writes of this particular text. He said, the power of raising the dead is the highest of which we can conceive. The ancient pagan declared it to be even beyond the power of God to raise someone from the dead. It implies not merely giving life to a deceased body, but it implies the power of entering the world of spirits 
of recalling the departed soul and of reuniting it with the body, he that could do this must be omniscient as well as omnipotent. And if Jesus did it by his own power, it proves, it proves that he was divine. Well, we would say a good hearty amen to all of that. And here's what we know. Here's what we know from this text, that the power of our Savior, Jesus Christ, is superior to the power of the 